All right, well, if you have your Bibles, we're in Ephesians 5 today in the Pew Bibles. I didn't plan this. Let me see if I can quickly turn to it. It's on page 978 in the Pew Bibles, Ephesians chapter 5. And because we had a blessing of baptism today, I'm just going to jump right into it. You'll notice that my title is Walk Like a Christian. Now, my kids make fun of me all the time because I was born in the 80s, like barely, but they make fun of me all the time, tell me I'm an 80s kid. I'm more actually like a 90s kid. Regardless, this is the only, if you're an 80s rock fan, this is the only semi-reference we're going to have to 80s rock probably ever. So this is a reference to the Bangles, their song, Walk Like an Egyptian. Paul's not that concerned about you walking like an Egyptian. He's really interested in you walking like a Christian. So Ephesians 5 We're going to be in verses 3 to verse 21. Because we have been saved by by grace through faith. Ephesians 2 says that. And because the church must be united and pure, as Ephesians 4 has said, and each local church is a microcosm of the church, capital C church, and each Christian is a microcosm of both the capital C church and their local church. That's why we say all the time, like, please, if you're wearing a Liberty Northeast shirt, please tip your waiter well. Right? We, like, we don't want to be like, yeah, I used to be a waiter uh, at a breakfast place. You may have heard of it. It's called Bob Evans. And... Every once in a while, after church, I would head over and I would wait tables and I would catch the after church crowd, the worst tippers by far. And that would spread throughout the kitchen. People would be talking about that. All right? So anyway, that's just what I'm going to say. You're a microcosm of this church, but you're also a microcosm of the capital C church. And because of that, Paul wants to elaborate on all the themes that he shared so far just by basically saying, to be a Christian, you must walk like a Christian. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I don't want you to tune out. There's going to be some things here for you as well. But primarily, Paul wants to talk to Christians here. He says, to be a Christian, walk like a Christian. So as best we can, this is almost like a family meeting that Paul is having. So he first says, walk as light and walk in wisdom. Those are the two things he wants us to see. Walk as light, walk in wisdom. The Greek word to walk is the word perpateo. You can impress your friends with that later. Ephesians, Ephesians, perpateo is always used figuratively. It can mean actually walking, but here Paul in Ephesians uses it figuratively. So he said thus far, he said, don't walk as you once did according to the world and the devil. But he says, walk in the works that God has prepared for you. Ephesians 2.10, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk in Christ-like love. For Paul, he's using it figuratively. He's saying walk means to behave. Behave like Christians. And so what we're going to do is we're going to zoom in where he uses the word walk. And then we'll zoom out and look at the passages around it. So let's first zoom in and look at where he talks about walk as light. Let's look at verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, 
For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. A Christian reflects the light of Christ by how they behave. Notice, Paul does not say, walk in light. He doesn't say, walk like light. He says, walk as light. What's he saying? Your identity is light. Outside of Christ, if you do not believe in Jesus, your identity was, if you're a Christian, is, if you're a non-Christian, darkness. But in Christ, your identity is light. And so he's saying, behave like light. Don't behave like darkness. Behave as a reflection of the light, Christ, he says. Now, from my limited scientific knowledge, and by that I mean based on the one YouTube video I watched about this, light behaves in two ways. The first way is refraction. Refraction is when light changes direction. So, for instance, it goes through something and changes direction. That's why when it rains and light goes through the rain, you see a what? Rainbow. Good, you guys are smarter than me. You don't have to watch a YouTube video. Reflection, though, is the other way. Reflection happens when light bounces off of stuff. And that helps us in two ways, particularly from there. First, when light bounces off something like a ball, it helps you distinguish a ball from a book. It might be harder to do this, but also distinguishes your husband from your dog. All right? Those are, that's one way it does. It bounces off things and shows you, it helps you distinguish. The other way, it bounces off things like a mirror so you can see what you look like. So light refracts and it reflects. Spiritual light works a similar way. We, light, are to reflect Christ's light, the light, as a mirror. So when I look at myself and my behavior, what should I see? Christ. So that when I can see Christ being formed in me by the Holy Spirit. So also that means when others look at me and they see the light of Christ bouncing off of me, they should be able to distinguish me from those whose identity is darkness. And as light, we're called to avoid things that are associated with darkness. Because we're not darkness, we're light. We can't be in the same space. So let's zoom out from there, jump to the first three. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among the saints. Sex is a good thing. I expected some amens from that. Just kidding. Just kidding. Sex is created by God as a good gift. And as such, 
we're called to avoid actions and words that would take away from its goodness. The first one he mentions is sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneia. It means very specifically any sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant between a man and a woman. Paul says stay away from that. Sexual, the impurity is sexual impurity. Covetousness is sexual covetedness or being greedy for sex. That's what he's saying. Don't be greedy for it. But he says not only your actions, but also your words should avoid as well. Avoid darkness. Verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. What is he saying? He's saying those who are light should not make light of God's gifts. Those who are light should not make light of the gift of sex. Especially in our conversations. Do we joke about it? Do we think it's funny? Are we crude? And I'm not like picking on you guys because I fall on this too sometimes. Instead, he says, we should thank God for the gift. Instead, let there be thanksgiving for it. Let's keep reading. Ephesians 5, 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. What he's not saying, let me start by saying, he's not saying those who struggle with sexual sin and are repentant, you get no inheritance. What he's talking about is anyone who persistently corrupts God's good gift and has no problem with corrupting it, either out of arrogance or ignorance, their punishment will be that they lose their inheritance that Paul talked about in Ephesians 1. They lose the opportunity, the chance to reign in the new heavens and new earth with Christ. So he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. What's amazing to me, let's just take a step back for a second. What's amazing to me, but also comforting to me, is that the issues in the Bible are the same issues we deal with today. Like, he could be writing to this to us right now, and it would still apply. You can find, you can find so-called Christians online, on social media, even in churches who will deceive you by claiming that the Bible's prohibitions on certain sexual activities or words are out of date, they've been misinterpreted, or misused. Let me just, let me just put it this way. If you want to go outside of God's design for marriage, you can find a so-called Christian who will tell you it's okay. And Paul's saying, don't let them deceive you. Do not become partners with such people, Paul says. What he's not saying 
is that don't have any contact or association with those people. Because otherwise, like, who would we share the gospel with? Partners is the same word he uses in Ephesians 3, 6 when he refers to the Gentiles who, become, who are now fellow partakers with the Jews in Christ. What he's saying is we're not to partake. If you're light, you're not to partake in the same corruption as them. In other words, if you partake in their actions, you partake in their doom. Let me say that again. If you partake in their actions, you will partake in their doom. Now look, I have enough non-Christian friends and skeptical friends who often say something like this to me. They go, here we go again. You Christians... You guys are such prudes about sex. Come on. Does God really care what we do in our bedrooms? Does he really actually care what people do in their bedrooms? Yeah, he does. Why? Let me give you an analogy. If you ever had an expensive glass of whiskey or wine, or if you're Baptist, water, if you ever had an expensive, gift, uh, expensive glass of whiskey or wine, those things are best in their purest forms. Any alteration to it minimizes its goodness. I have a friend who's like a whiskey snob. If you, like, he gives you an expensive glass of whiskey and you're like, hey, can I put some ice in this? He'll be like, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? He says you got to drink it the way it came out of the bottle. They're best enjoyed the way they're designed to be enjoyed. God's not trying to keep you from having a good time. He wants you to enjoy something, sex, the way it's designed to be enjoyed. Altering it takes away from its goodness. So some ways that happens is we make sex becomes about consumption. Like, we have to consume sex as much as possible, like sex on a screen. We got we to gotta get as much as we can out of that. Or sex becomes transaction, right? Where we trade something to get it. This, ta- this is an alteration. We might go something like this. Hey, we've been on three dates now. Give me what I paid for. I expect something from you now. Sex is a transaction. Or survival. Like sex is a thirst that needs to be quenched. But what we do when we do that is we minimize God's good gift. One way we do that is we belittle it. Like when, we can, when sex becomes cons- about consumption or transaction, it belittles God's gift. Or when it becomes about survival, we heighten it to the point of necessity. And you can't, when you can't get it as easily as you think that you should be able to get it, or no one wants to give you what you believe you want or need, what happens is you feel unvalued. You feel less human. And then you're filled with shame and feel broken. Like, what's wrong with me that no one wants to trade with me? 
I must not be truly human. There must be something wrong with me because I need this thing that I can't get. And although God, listen to me, although God would love to spare you from that in the first place, the good news is that God can heal your sexual brokenness. I know, and it pains my heart, that many of you, in conversations with you, walk with sexual brokenness and shame. Because you heard what the world's lies were and said, I want that. I wasn't enjoying it the way God designed it to be enjoyed. And I want you to know he can heal you and forgive you. He just says, just bring it to me. Would you just bring it to me? And I'll heal that. So let's keep reading verse 9. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, and he's probably quoting an early Christian hymn here, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What he wants us to see, what Paul wants to see, what God wants us to see is that the fruit of darkness is damnation and destruction. The fruit of light is goodness, rightness, and truth. So I just, I'll just ask you, which is your identity? Darkness? If it's darkness, you get the fruit of darkness. Or is it light? Which is your identity, and are you aware of its fruit? What it's doing to you? Spiritual darkness hides the realities of sin. It hides its destructiveness. It hides the fact that its fruit is damnation. As light, though, we have responsibility. Those of us who are, are light because of the light of Christ, we have the responsibility to expose sin. We have the responsibility to expose sin in our midst. But Paul says to do this in Galatians 6, 1. He says, do it gently. And he says, the reason you do it is not to embarrass people, but to restore them, to heal them. And by doing so, you not only heal them, but also the body of Christ. But notice in verse 14, it's Christ's light that makes the difference. Until Christ's lights the light shines on someone else's sin, you can try to convince them until you're blue in the face, but until Christ does it, they'll remain in darkness. So we must rely on him to rescue and restore. So walk in light and walk in wisdom. Verse 15, he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. A Christian walks as light, but a Christian also walks in wisdom from the Holy Spirit. God has, real quick, I'm going to give you a quick like crash course theology. 
Okay? Hang with me. God has two kinds of will. He has his general will, which is the Bible, and it gives us moral rules on how to live our lives. But he also has his particular will for particular situations. And God calls us to use wisdom to determine his particular will. You don't have to determine God's rules for your life. That's in the Bible. So for young, peop- young people, when you're thinking like, what's God's will for my life on what college I should go to? You need wisdom for that, for God's particular will. Or which Christian boy or girl should I date? You need God's particular will, so you need wisdom from the Holy Spirit. So wisdom, we already have learned, comes from the Holy Spirit. Verse, chapter 1, verse 17. And the Holy Spirit helps us make good decisions to bring glory to God. And isn't this amazing? That not only did God send his son to die for you, so you can change your identity from darkness to light, but that God also gives you the Holy Spirit to empower you with wisdom to walk like a Christian. Isn't that wonderful? You have the Holy Spirit inside of you to help you figure these things out. So it's not by your strength that you have to behave as light, but it's the strength that's been given to you by the triune God, by God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. So the wise discern, then decide. The foolish jump in without thinking about it. So wise Christians wait and pray before buying a house, making sure that their church commu- there's a church community there that will be able to sustain their faith. Wise Christians seek advice from other Christians before getting married and in marriage. That's why I oftentimes tell people, like, especially in premarital counseling, I say, look, just find a couple, a godly couple that you think is doing marriage right and just do exactly what they're doing. You don't have to make it up. Those of you who have struggles in your marriage, find a godly couple that you think is doing it right and say, can I just shadow you? Just teach me on-the-job training. Tell me what I need to do. Wise Christians do that. Wise Christians think carefully about how they spend their time. They do things like schedule their family's lives around Sunday, not Sunday around their family's lives. You see the difference? That's why we always say Sunday morning is a Saturday night decision. For some of us, Sunday morning is... The previous Monday's decision. Wise Christians give the Lord their first and their best, and in prayer, trust God for the rest. And once that's determined, we go for it. Sometimes in Christian circles, discernment is an excuse for indecision. Well, I'm just discerning the Lord's will right now. You've been doing that for like two years, bro. Just make a decision, do something. Instead, what it does is it slows us down to make sure we're seeking God's will first, and then we make a decision. So my suggestion would be, like, when you have a really important decision, take 24 to 48 hours and pray about it, and then make a decision. I also would say, some things are choices, not decisions. This is for free. What kind of paint to paint your bedroom 
is a choice. It's not a decision. What college you go to is a decision. Who you marry is a decision. What color your kid's bedroom is going to be, just make a choice. It's okay. It's going to be all right. The nice part about paint is you can always paint over it. So Paul continues, what does a spirit-filled Christian do? Well, first he says, and do not be drunk with wine, verse 18, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, he's saying, whereas alcohol is a depressant and often makes us say and do things without concern or thought about the consequences of our actions, the Holy Spirit is a stimulant. And just like you can tell when someone had his or her fill of alcohol, other Christians should be able to see the evidence when you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says there's three ways to do that. You can see the evidence by how we praise, how we respond in every circumstance, and how we treat each other. So real quickly, verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Praise has a vertical and a horizontal component, Paul is saying. Part of praise is coming to church and singing your heart to God. That's the vertical. But the other part is the horizontal. When you sing, you're actually singing the gospel to each other. So when you're pouring out your heart to God, what the Holy Spirit is doing, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, is using your voice to speak to someone else who can't bring themselves to praise. And flip it. When you can barely sing at church, let alone, like where you can barely get to church, let alone sing at church, the Holy Spirit takes the voice of other Christians and speaks them to your heart as if God himself is speaking to you. Verse 20 says, give thanks giving thanks always and for everything to the Lord and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The spiritual Christian, he's saying, doesn't grumble or complain, but has a heart of gratitude for all God has done, interestingly, always and for everything. You could take that to the bank. That's hard. But he says that's what a spiritual Christian does. Doesn't mean you have to like everything but being grateful in, in everything. Verse 21, off, we'll finish off with this verse. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Often Christians who claim to be filled with the Spirit are some of the most aggressive, arrogant, self-promoting people I've ever met. And I'm sure you can think of some of those people too. But the Holy Spirit is a humble spirit. The, a truly spirit-filled Christian displays humility, gentleness, and servant-mindedness of Christ towards other Christians. So as we close, let me ask you just a couple questions. Is your praise selfish or selfless? How are you coming to church? It's about me and God time. Woo! That's selfish. When you start to be filled with the Holy Spirit, it moves to selfless. I'm here to praise God, and I'm here to be with my brothers and sisters, and I hope I can encourage them when they're down 
and sing and dance with them when they're on a high? Do you complain every time life throws you a curveball? Or are you able to stand firm in gratitude? And are you aggressive or gentle? Are you arrogant or humble? Are you self-promoting or servant-minded? Paul says, take stock of your life. If you're claiming to be light, you're claiming to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we should be able to see these things. So Paul says, walk like a Christian. Walk in your identity as light and walk in wisdom from the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.